So when uh, you're generous here at Radius, those are the ways that we uh, are generous across the globe. We've talked about ways that we are generous to Ezekiel Ministries here that uses our building for an after-school program, and then Empower One and, and many others. And throughout the year, we just want to share those updates with you. We want you to know that when you give money in those black boxes back there, that's how that generosity is used. When you go online and you give, you are, you're partnering with us to partner with these organizations to send the gospel out. And Empower One for us represents our DNA. They are church planning. They are making disciples. And that's our mission statement here at Radius. We exist to glorify God by planting churches, making disciples, and living generously. And so we want to continue to do that. You notice at the bottom of that screen, it's got the dollars times two. This year, we turned 18 years old. And when we turned 18, the last 18 years, these first 18 years of our existence, we've given away five and a half million dollars to organizations like this. You bet. Something to be thankful for. The reason why we have the times two there is because over the next three years, by the time we turn 21 in the year 2024, we would love to give away another $6 million to places like this. So when you're generous, it allows Radius to be generous as well. We're pretty excited about that. I want to pray for Empower One right now and also for our time in the Word, and we'll get after it. Father, I, uh, I come to you now and... and um, as I think about Empower One, I think about a buddy of mine, Scott Heider, who's in Austin, who, who works with them and, and on the North American side is helping them do all of the things needed to, to plant churches and, and make disciples. And I'm thankful for not just the, the folks stateside, but the folks in Sudan who are doing the hard work, who are, who are loving you and making disciples and planting churches. And I'm I just pray, Lord, that this little bit of money that we send their way would, would, would be multiplied as, as they are able to build a building and then use that to train pastors to, to plant more churches. Thanks for that work. I know there are a lot of great organizations out there that are doing this, and, and Lord, it's just fun to be a part of one of them and to help support one. Lord, as I uh, think about our time this morning, I, I pray that as we look at your word, as we, we jump into Ephesians and start this study fresh and anew, that, um, Father, as always, we just ask for you to be the better speaker. Holy Spirit, you, you inspired this text, and we just ask for you to illuminate it and make it real in our lives and, and speak to us. So that's what we ask. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. My mom worked for Southwestern Bell, now AT&T, for 35 years. Uh, she went to work week in and week out and did that. And uh, when she retired, she couldn't hold still, so she went to work for the government. And uh, this last year, she finally said, I'm done. At 78 years old, she says, I'm not going to work for the government anymore. And, and she did that for about seven years. She worked for the Census Bureau. Um, one week out of the month, she would be given a list of addresses, and my mom would be tasked to drive up to a front door and knock on it and ask them Census Bureau questions. She has some crazy stories to tell, right? Because not everybody wants you knocking on a door. I wasn't real thrilled about it, but mom's a people person. And so she was enjoying every, every moment. I asked her the other day, like, have we all had those weird census questions that there are times you're like, man, I don't even know if I would, I would tell somebody I really love the answer to this question, much less a stranger, right? 
As you think through the census, it happens every 10 years, and that way it kind of gives us a snapshot into our society. Um, Over the years, some of those questions have been pretty crazy, pretty out there. We've tried to figure out who we are as as a people. A guy named Scott Wiseman wrote this little ditty about the kind of the over the top nature of the census. I'll read it to you. He says, give your name and age and business. Is your husband working now? Do you rent or own the building? Did you ever milk a cow? (laughs) This is strictly confidential. Are you underweight or fat? Does your husband have a bunion? Are his arches good or flat? Did you vote for Herbert Hoover? Are you dry or are you wet? Did you ever use tobacco? Did you ever place a bet? Are you saving any money? Did you ever pay your debt? Are your husband's old red flannels in the wash or on him yet? 1940, right? They've got some some ideas. Uh, Newsweek posted an article kind of poking fun at the census. But the reality is, is if you think about America today and you could just a few clicks away from knowing more about Lexington County than you could ever imagine. Just a few clicks away, you could go and you could see how we have... I mean, completely exegeted our culture from a standpoint of we know income and quality of life and, and, and causes of death to divorce, divorce rates to socioeconomic status. We, we have all kinds of things that are answered within that. And that's not even to mention big data. I mean, like the times that you think about buying something and it shows up on your Facebook feed, right? I mean, we know ourselves or we know more about ourselves than ever before. But what I would say is I think today we are probably more confused about our identity than we've ever been before. The idea that uh, do we really know who we are in the eyes of God? Do we really know who we are in lens of what Jesus Christ has done for us? I mean, we just spent seven weeks on a series called He, She, His, and you talk about confusion around that subject alone. And so for us, just to to spend the next few months, and when I say next few months, I really mean that. We are going to work through the book of Ephesians because the book of Ephesians in the first three chapters tell us who we are. It is this great letter that Paul writes to say, this is our identity. We are, and he's going to tell us who we are. And it's going to be a fascinating journey. The reason we do that is because we believe here at Radius, who you are determines what you do. And so the last three chapters of the book of Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, tell you how you live in light of this new identity we have in Jesus Christ. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to go through it with you. When you walked in, you got the book of Ephesians. This is a scripture journal. You'll notice it's the new living translation. It is the entire text of the book of Ephesians with some notes next to it. I encourage you to bring this on Sundays. Uh, bring it to small group as you read. Mark notes in it. This is a great way to, to have a conversation and just to let Ephesians wash all over you. We're excited about this this opportunity to figure out who we are. So with all that said, let's jump in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord 
Jesus Christ. Two names are mentioned there. Uh, it'd probably be good to know who those are before we can figure out who we are. The first one is Paul. The second one is Ephesus. So let's just try to figure this out. What I'd like to do is just put Ephesians in the context of your entire Bible. There are 66 books in a Bible that you would hold. 36 of them are in the Old Testament. 27 are in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's really basic. This is how it goes. God is wanting to declare his holiness and his glory and his love and his mercy to the world. And he does that primarily through a nation called Israel, the Jews. Unfortunately, they fail miserably. They fail miserably at it. And you read how they fail throughout those 36 books. But God says this, I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to leave you, the nation of Israel, or all the nations hung out to dry. There will be one who is going to come, a Savior and a Messiah. That's basically the Old Testament. Then you move to the New Testament. You have 26 books. And those 26 books are all about, you guessed it, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who would come. Now, when you read your New Testament or the Old Testament, it's not written in chronological order. And that's the reason why when we start reading our Bible and you start in Genesis and then you get to Deuteronomy, if we make it that far, we look back and we're like, he's saying the same things we've already talked about. And that's the reason why it's not in chronological order. Same thing for the New Testament. So let me just show you the New Testament really quickly so you have a ground for it. I'm going to put it in chronological order for you right up here on the screen. The first four books of the New Testament are all a biography of Jesus Christ. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you read Matthew front to back, you're going to hear about his birth, his life, his ministry, and the death, burial, and resurrection. As soon as you get to Mark, guess what? You start the whole thing back over again, right? So that's what you have. You have those four. If you're reading it chronologically, the next book you would read would be Acts. Now, Acts is a history of the early church. It's the story of how people are responding to the gospel. How are people responding to this life-changing reality of Jesus Christ? And it's primarily about a guy named Paul, the guy we just said is writing this book. So this is how it goes down. Paul hates Christians early on hates them. He can't stand them. He doesn't think Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't think Jesus is the Savior. He's killing Christians. And then all of a sudden, miraculously, Jesus appears to Paul, and Paul says, you know what? Life has changed. I'm now with him, and not only am I with Jesus, I want to go around the world everywhere and tell people about Jesus. That's what he does. And so you'll notice up here, we have missionary journeys. There are three massive missionary journeys that Paul takes that the book of Acts has for us. On the first missionary journey, we see that he writes the book of Galatians. Why? Because in the first half of that missionary journey, he goes to Galatia. On the way out, he's like, hey, let me write to my friends. I got to hang out with them. Your book of James, written by the half-brother of Jesus, was also written in that time frame. On the second missionary journey, Paul writes to the Thessalonians. Why? Because at the first part of this missionary journey, that time, he stops in Thessalonica. And he's on his way home, and he's like, hey, let me write to my buddies in Thessalonians. Right? He writes two letters. On his third missionary journey, Paul writes to the Corinthians. Matter of fact, we only have two letters to the Corinthians, but the text makes it clear. I think he wrote probably four. 
Paul had an issue with the Corinthians. They didn't really jive with his message, right? And the reason why is because he went to Corinth on the first half. And then he also wrote a letter to the Romans. He had not gone to Rome at this point. So when you read the letter of Romans, it's more like his written presentation of the gospel because he really wants to go there, but he hasn't had a chance to go there yet. Now, let me pause. Third missionary journey. If you've got your maps in the back of your Bible, you'll notice on that third one, one of those lines goes through Ephesus. And when that line goes through that dot, it represents somewhere between two and a half to three years. Paul hangs out in Ephesus for two and a half to three years. That's what he does. The tail end of the book of Acts is when Paul is in prison. People get tired of Paul preaching the gospel, and so they're, you know what? We're going to put you in prison. And when he's in prison, he's got nothing better to do than to what? Write some letters. So he writes Ephesians. He's like, hey, let me write to my buddies. I spent three years with them. He also writes to the Colossians, Philippians, because he went to those cities as well. And then he also writes to a buddy, Philemon. That's where we are. Now I'm going to give you the rest of it all in one foul swoop. You got Paul is going to go in and out of prison. While he's free the first time, he's going to write to his buddy Timothy and Titus. Now, this is important. We'll probably reference this throughout the series. When Paul leaves Ephesus, he needs to put a pastor in place. And guess who that pastor is? Timothy. So when you read First and Second Timothy, you're reading about him as he's pastoring the church in Ephesus. Then when Paul's in prison a second time, he reads, writes another letter to Timothy and also Hebrews and Jude are written at that point. And then finally to close the whole thing out, John, the best friend of Jesus while he was on the planet, writes these books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Revelation. That is our New Testament in chronological order. This is what I need you to know. Paul spent two and a half to three years in Ephesus. He is now in prison and he's got great relationship with these people. I just want you to think about it just for a moment. Let me help you put it in context. I moved here from Texas four years ago. Moved from Texas four years ago. I told my wife the other day, I feel like I am just now hitting my groove with relationships here. I feel like I'm just now hitting my groove where I feel like, man, y'all know me and you've put up with me and and I know you. And like there's some relationships that are building and forming. And I can't imagine being Paul after three years having to bail out. But he did because he had to go plant another church and he had to go present the gospel and he had to move on and do something more. So that's what we've got. So when Paul says in verses 1 and 2, I'm writing this letter to you, the church at Ephesus, he knows them. He knows them by name, and he also knows that they know him. Relationship has been formed. There's a third thing I want us to see in these first two verses, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Read it again. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will to the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus. Saints. Now, if you've got your scripture journal, you're going to notice your translation says something different. I actually like your translation better than mine. It says, holy people. I think the translation actually is better rendered, holy ones. Now, when I say the word saint, I have no idea what's going through your mind. I'm going to take a guess, though. Some of you guys are hoping to go home and watch some football, and you're thinking New Orleans saints, right? Drew Brees, whole nine yards, that's about as as deep as we get with the saint talk. Some of us, if you're a kid in the room, you might be thinking, old Saint Nick, You might be thinking St. Patty's Day. We got some of those kind of things that come to mind. Others of us, my guess would be, is that we think about all-star Christians. 
We think about saints and we think about these are the all-stars. These are the all-pros. These are the people that like are really good. So matter of fact, if I were to have started this sermon and said, hey, how many of you think you are saints? My bet would be most of you wouldn't have raised your hand, right? You probably would have pointed at somebody else and thought, boy, that person's a saint. That person reads their Bible. That person's really walks with Jesus. That person. Like most of us don't think of being a saint because we don't think, like, I, I'm not an all-star. I, I'm, not, I'm not great. I, I can't do that. I think we get that all-star mentality, like it's something you earn, because it's, it's something that the Catholic Church has, has taught us. So when you think about saints, those of you from a, a Catholic background might be thinking, hey, there were, there were saints when I was, was growing up. This is how the Catholic Church would do it. They would, they would look at somebody's life, and it would be incredibly amazing. Maybe they had a, a, a great life that the people near them knew, like, wow, this person walked with Jesus. And not only was it noticed by people nearby, but it was noticed by others. And then some, most of the time, these saints had multiple miracles attributed to them because of their prayer life. And so regions would recognize them. And then finally, the Pope would venerate them and say, hey, we revere this person. This person went straight to heaven. The Catholic Church would say, we don't know all the saints, but we know some of them. And I think that's where we get this idea that maybe you earn this. Maybe this is something we, we earn. If I do it just right, I, I'll, I'll be revered. Or maybe those are the people that are revered. Or maybe like, Russell, you're a preacher slash saint slash pastor, and you're something else. I, I, I don't think that's what Paul is going for here. So I think if we just use the word holy ones, it'll take some of that baggage off of us just for a moment. Let's talk about the word holy ones as it relates to the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, obviously, holy can be used as an adjective. There are all kinds of things that are holy in the Bible. Obviously, God is holy. There's a holy nation, the Jews. There's a holy land. There's holy priest. There's a holy temple. And in the temple, there's the holy of holies. Why? What made something holy and is described holy in the Old Testament. What's typically described as that is what is in proximity to the Holy One. If you're close to the Holy One, then you would therefore be deemed what? Holy. And so the nation of Israel is called a holy people because God has chosen them for himself and said, I am your God and you're to be holy as I am holy. And so when God comes down into the temple and one time a year, goes into the holy of holies, it is ultra holy because of proximity, nearness to it. Think about when Moses was looking at that bush that was on fire and it was talking to him. What did he do with his sandals? He took off his sandals because he said, I'm on holy ground. And he was not in the holy land. He wasn't there. Why? Because he knew, holy God is speaking to me. So if I am in proximity to a holy God, therefore I would be holy. How does that relate to us in the New Testament? It's a little different for us, isn't it? Because if we all were honest, we would recognize that we cannot approach a holy God. We know he is holy and righteous and pure and has never done anything wrong. And we have, we lie, we cheat, we steal, we do all of the things that, that sinners do. 
And that, those sins separate us. That's what Romans 6.23 says. Point blank, it says the wages of sin, of your lying, cheating, stealing, whatever else is going through your mind that you do, it separates us from God. That is death. The minute that Adam and Eve sinned for the first time, there was separation relationally, and then there became separation geography. They had to get kicked out of the garden. And you and I deal with that. We, we, we have that problem. Now, here's what's great. God loves you. Why? Because he made you. And he loves you so much that while you were still sinning, lying, cheating, stealing, and the like, he sent his son to die for you. And when he died for you, he took your place in that separation. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and cried out, why have you forsaken me? He took that separation. And guess what we do in response? We say, thank you, God, for loving us. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to follow you. I want to give my life to you. You're the master and Lord of my life. And guess what happens when you do that? You are brought near to God. And if you're brought near to God who is holy, what does that make you? A holy one. Matter of fact, just look at it. Ephesians 2. 13, I can't say this too much because I'm going to be preaching in a couple weeks, right? Look at what it says. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are far away, us, have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. Now, there's a whole lot more I could talk about all that when it comes to holiness. But we now have proximity to God, not by anything you have done. You can't earn it. We are in rebellion. There is nothing. I can't be good enough. I can't pray enough. I can't read my Bible enough. I can't take communion enough to get me to God. But Jesus Christ, by his death, burial, and resurrection, has done that. I could close the book right now. The band could come out. We could sing, take communion, and we will have had a mouthful there, won't we? What an amazing thought. That we are holy because Jesus Christ has drawn us near. We are holy ones. There's a second way. There's a second way that we're holy ones. Holy doesn't just mean proximity, that we are near God, and so uh, I'm holy. It also means to be consecrated or set apart. So when God looks at the people, when he gives them the law, he goes, you're my people, and I need you to be holy. I need you to be holy because I am holy. And he looks at the priest and he goes, hey, you're holy priest. I I need you to do the work consecrated unto me. And he looked at the nation of Israel and he said, I didn't just choose you as a nation for the fun of it. I chose you to proclaim the excellencies, the glory, the holiness, and the grace of God to the world. That's why I chose you. That's why you're a holy, set-apart, consecrated people. What a great call. The problem is, is they failed miserably. They did not point to him. Matter of fact, they started worshiping all kinds of, of lesser gods. And as a result, no one was pointed to God. But that's who we are. We are holy not only that we've been drawn near to him. We are holy in that we have been consecrated. We have been set apart for a purpose. Let me show it to you in the Bible. It says uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Listen to these words. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his purpose 
possession. Do you see all that? Like this is all that you are. You are consecrated. You are set apart for me. Why? So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is our purpose. You have been made close to God through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and you've been given a purpose in your life. You are to declare to people what has happened in you. That is what it means to be holy. That is what it means to be a holy one. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Again, I could close it up right now and walk off this stage and the band come out, and we have much to worship God for. Being drawn near, given a purpose in this life to represent him. But there's a third one. Let me give you a third one. I think this one's actually, actually pretty cool too. He says this. When we think about the word holy, not only is it an adjective, but it can be used substantively, which means it, it doesn't just function as an adjective. It functions as the substance. Let me give you an example. In English, we might say rich, poor. We can use it as an adjective, and we could say rich person. Describes a person, place, or thing. We could say a rich company. We could also say poor. We could say um, a poor person or a poor country. That's, That's used as an adjective. But I can also use it as the substance, which would be this. Robin Hood stole from the poor or stole from the rich and gave to the and we all know what he's talking about. We don't, it, it just functions as the substance there. It doesn't have to be describing something. You have that in your Old Testament. The word holy isn't an adjective in 16 places. It's just the substance. And when you see it as a substance, 16 times, guess it, what it refers to? It doesn't refer to us. It refers to spiritual beings. A couple of times of God, several of the angels, crazy. Then when you get to the New Testament, 61 times the word holy is used in a substance kind of a way. And guess what it's always in relationship to? People. Us. It's always plural, save one time. Always plural, talking about those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus. Now something's going on here. Why in the world would holy ones be used of spiritual beings in the Old Testament and then of us in the New Testament? Let, let me show it to you just really quickly so you see what I'm talking about. These will be up on the, on the screen. Look at Proverbs 9.10. This is probably a passage you've heard before. Maybe you didn't know this word holy was there. It says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy one is understanding. There it is, just as a substantive way talking about God. Let me give you another one in Job chapter 5. It says, call out if you please. Will anyone answer you? Which of the holy ones will you turn to? There it is. It's talking about some spiritual being saying you can cry out, but which of the holy ones up there are going to listen to you? There are are a few more. I could show you 14 more. I'll I'll just show you one more in Daniel chapter 4. As Daniel is having this vision of the end times, look at what he says in verse 13. As he's fixing to have this vision. As I was lying in my bed, I also saw in the vision of my mind an observation, a holy one. Some of us might say an angel coming down from heaven. 
And then we get the rest of the vision. And then over there in, in verse 17, it says, The word is by decree of the observers or the watchers. The matter is a command from the holy ones. Spiritual beings. Right? So what in the world changes? What in the world happens so that all of a sudden these spiritual beings aren't referenced in the New Testament as holy ones, but we are, the church? I think it happens in Daniel chapter 7. Just a few chapters over. Daniel chapter 7. I, I, I don't have time to get into all of this. If you want some crazy reading this week, go read it. There's beasts with horns. There's four of them. It's crazy. It's nuts. I'd love to teach it sometime. But right now, this is what you need to know. God wins in the end, right? That's what's going to happen. God's going to win in the end. And watch what happens when he wins in the end. Are you ready? Verse 27. The kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, uh-oh, the holy ones of the Most High. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. There's one of the two times holy ones is us. He says, in the end, when God wins, and all these other kingdoms are defeated, we're going to give this thing over. And I'm going to give it to those who are with Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. In other words, there is something, there's something kingdom-oriented about this. This also has something to do with if they're handed over, like reigning and ruling. I, 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 know, I, I know we think, man, I just want to go to heaven and sit on a cloud and play a harp. Man, let me be clear. I think our future is way greater than that. Amen. It's way bigger than that. I think it has to do with being a holy one. So, so let me show it to you. I, I know you're probably thinking, that's a big stretch from Daniel 4 to Daniel 7. I'm with you. Let me, let me show it to you in Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to give you a few, just a handful. Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. Talking about Jesus. The elders sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll. We're going to sing worthy here in a minute. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered, Jesus, and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And then watch this. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will what? Reign on the earth. Rain on the earth. I don't think rain means live. Like it's new heaven, new earth. There is leadership here. He goes on and says this. I'll give you another one in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's the famous passage about why we're not supposed to sue each other as Christians. He says this in verse 1 and 3. If any of you has a legal dispute against another, do not dare go to court before the unrighteous and not before the or holy ones, right? Don't do it. Why? Or don't you know that the holy ones or saints will judge the world? Then he says this, and if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest cares? Why do we need lawyers and judges to help us? We're going to rule and reign one day. Can't we handle this ourselves? That's pretty crazy, isn't it? Then he goes on, he says this in 2 Timothy 
2.12, last one. He says, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, Jesus, we will also live with him, Jesus. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Reign. We were going to reign. I want you to think about that just for a moment. As you think about it, I know this idea that we have been drawn near to Jesus is an amazing truth. And it has so changed our lives. And the fact that not only that, but that we now have purpose to declare that grace and majesty. But it goes further than that. In the end, when God wins, when we line up and say we're allegiant to King Jesus, we reign with him forever. What a thought to being a holy one, isn't it? Some of y'all are looking at me like that is, I don't know. Man, I think when Paul looks at those guys and says, after two and a half, three years, you're holy ones. And we don't get this because you're going to walk out of here today and the kingdoms of this world are they just, they don't, they don't stand out like the kingdoms of the world 2,000 years ago. Maybe they do. I, I just think most of us are blind to it. Last passage I'm going to show to you and I'm going to be done. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 is that little snapshot when Paul was in Ephesus for two and a half, three years. When Paul gets there, he goes into the synagogue because he's Jewish and he wants to start preaching to the Jews about their Messiah. They look at him and say, hey, thanks, but no thanks. We're not with you. We want to stay Jewish. Go ahead and leave the synagogue. There's this amazing place in Ephesus that if you were to travel there now, modern day Turkey, you could stand in the hall of Tyrannus, which holds 10,000, 20,000 people. And that's where Paul begins to hold discussions. You can go there today and see it. Look at what happens when he starts preaching in this hall. Verse 9. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them and met separately with his disciples, conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And this went on for two years, so that all the inhabitants of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the message about the Lord. For two years, they hear this message. They hear the gospel. And how do they respond? Their lives are changed. He goes on and tells them how their lives are changed. He tells them this in in verses 18. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone, so they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. These people were doing witchcraft. They were looking in their magic books and throwing stuff in fire and making it pop, and they were thinking they were something, and they hear about Jesus. Christ, the life-changing reality of Jesus, and they say, here, I'm burning the book, and I'm leaving these practices. I'm saying no to that, and I'm saying yes to Jesus Christ, and it's going to have major consequences. So, there's an uproar. Things start to change. Verse 23, during that time, there was a major disturbance about the way the church 
for a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. So if all these people are coming to know Jesus and they're saying, hey, I'm not with I'm not with Artemis anymore. I'm not with the witchcraft anymore. Do they need to buy the little silver trinkets of Artemis anymore? They don't need that anymore. And so Demetrius says, you can figure this out. One plus one equals two. This is going to put a dent in my pocketbook. This isn't going to be good. Now, you can go there today. You will not see the temple of Artemis in its full glory. At one point, it still is one of the seven major wonders, ancient wonders of the world. It is spectacular in its, uh, you know, building and, and what the, the architectural accomplishment of the time. And people drove near and far to worship this goddess of Artemis. And here they are giving their lives to Jesus He said in verse 25, when he had assembled them as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, men, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. You both see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man, Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that God made with hands are not God's. He gets all his buddies together and he goes, hey, we got to do something about this because they're not buying our stuff anymore. And not only that, but he's talking about Jesus. But not only is he not talking about Jesus, he's saying that our God is impotent, not real, weak. That's what he's saying. And they're not going to buy our stuff. And if they don't buy our stuff, we don't have a livelihood. Fellows, what are we going to do? says, verse 27, so not only do we run the risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificent come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world adore. Just for a minute, I want you to think about that sentence I just read, and you put Yahweh, God the Father, Jesus in place of Artemis. Can you ever imagine a sentence that would say, that the great God of the universe may be despised and his magnificence come to the verge of ruin? Can you imagine worshiping such a fragile God? Can you imagine that? Such a fragile God that you need all of us silversmiths to prop him up? Man, they all get in a, a tizzy, and for two hours the text says they started to chant, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours they chanted it. And then look at what happens. Verse 35. However, when the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven? Tradition says that they worshiped Artemis because probably a comet or a, a meteor hit the ground and they all ran over to it and they started, you know, carving images out because if it came from heaven, it must be divine. Now, did you notice what they claimed to be? Guardians of the temple. Guardians of the temple. Can you imagine worshiping a God that you could guard? Can you imagine that? Can you imagine worshiping one that you think you have all the privilege in the world? That 
I'm guarding this. We're, protect, we're protecting Artemis. <laughs> or would you rather worship the God who in the end every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord? Wouldn't you rather worship that one? Right. Sit back and I'll read this and... He says, therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must stay calm and not do anything rash. For you have brought these men who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of, God, of our goddess. He ends up squelching the crowd. Paul wanted to preach, but they wouldn't let him. And he ends up going on to the next city. And on the back end of his third missionary journey, he goes and he weeps with those elders. So here in a minute, as we read over the next month, about what Paul is going to tell them, who they are. This is who he says they are. Your saints, your holy ones, your holy ones. Remember earlier when I said, hey, if I were to ask you if you were a holy one or a saint, how many of you would raise your hand? If I tried it again now, what would you say? My hope would be you'd raise your hand with your chest stuck out and say, I'm one of them. I'm a holy one. Not because of anything I have done, because of what Jesus has done. Not because I've created my purpose, but because God has. And because one day he is going to win, and I'm going to stand with him to rule and reign forever. Forever. So we are saints. We are saints. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, I uh, confess I don't live like a saint most of the time. I'm too busy trying to get caught up in the things of this world and... I fall in love with this stuff that is way lesser and doesn't satisfy. And, and so, God, I confess that I am um, I'm weak when it comes to that. And I think about my identity that somehow you, you call me your own. You, you even give me your greatest character trait, holiness. And that, Lord, one day that when the end is drawn near, however you're going to do that, man, we're, we're going to rule with you and we're going to reign with you. And that's when the fun begins. And so, Lord, I pray that we would look forward to that day and I pray that we would confront the kingdoms of this world with that same vigor, vitality, because we know who wins in the end. Yeah, Lord, as I think about uh, singing to you in the next few moments, I pray that we would, out of the overflow of knowing who we are, just really be able to honor you well. I pray that as we come and, and take these, these elements, the, the juice that represents your blood that drew us near and, and your body that was broken and forsaken so that, that we could have your mercy Lord, I pray that we would give great thanks for that. Lord, I pray for the person here that um, may have come in this morning not feeling like much of a saint. And um, I pray your word would encourage and let them know that through your son, they're a holy one. Yeah, Lord, let us live in that confidence, that identity that you give us. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.